Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute off campus. Uh, we um, apologize for being under construction, but uh, next year when you come to the uh, Constitution Day conference, it will be in our brand new uh, Hayek Auditorium, which will have seating for, what, 250, I think, something along those lines. And so, Roger, you gave it away. This is the 10th anniversary special venue. Yes, I, oh, it is. I, <laughs> yes, it's, uh, we're under religious auspices now, so I suppose there's something to be said for that. In any event, um, yes, this is our 10th anniversary, and um, we are quite proud of the fact that we have um, produced the Cato Supreme Court Review over the last 10 years and produced the, um, the Constitution Day conferences over that period. When we started this program 10 years ago, we took it uh, as our mission uh, nothing less than to, as I titled my foreword that year, restore constitutional government, or to put it more modestly, to change the climate of ideas to one that would be more conducive to the restoration of constitutional government. The implication being that we were not really living under constitutional government, which I'm sure that a number of you in this room would uh, concur with. Um, Madison in Federalist 45 promised us that we would have a federal government whose powers were few and defined. Uh, today we have a federal government whose powers are anything but few and defined. And so one of the great projects before us was to try to recover the principles that Madison rested the Constitution on, <coughs> excuse me, the moral, political, and legal principles, and to revive a debate at least about those principles with the idea that eventually that debate would shape the course of events. And I'm happy to say that we have seen a substantial measure of success in that direction. 20 years ago, 22 years ago to be exact, when we created the Center for Constitutional Studies, we set again our mission as I've just described it. And one of the principal things we focused upon at that time was reviving the doctrine of enumerated powers. Well, in 1995, the court finally did revive it, at least at the edges, in the Lopez decision, when it found for the first time in 58 years that Congress had exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause. And then five years later, it reinforced that decision in the Morrison case. In 2005, however, we had a setback in the Rage case, the California medical marijuana case. And so there was a question of whether indeed the um, doctrine of enumerated powers would be lost forever. Well, it turns out that it is not lost, and it, it is again before us in the form of the litigation that is being conducted against the Affordability Care Act, or as some of us prefer to call it, the Obamacare Act. And several judges in several courts have raised the doctrine of enumerated powers as the centerpiece of the litigation that is being brought and has been brought by some 28 states. And so this debate is very much alive and well. It is taking place in the Tea Parties. It is taking place in elections, as we saw as recently as two days ago. And so uh, we are here now to continue that effort to revive this debate. And to do so, I'm going to turn the first panel over to our moderator, Ilya Shapiro, who is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and the man who is responsible more than any other for this program today and for this review that you have before you. Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato. He is also, as I said, the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, before joining Cato, he was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Um, I won't go through all his bio. You have it in your package. Uh, he is a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. 
Uh, he is a native speaker of English and Russian, and he's fluent in several other languages. And as I said last year, he will speak to us today in English. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Well, thanks, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here for uh, our 10th annual Constitution Day conference when we also release the Cato Supreme Court Review, the nation's first in-depth review of the term just ended. Um, we're in these new auspicious surroundings, so I guess we can refer to this as the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer for today's uh, occasion. You know, I, I, I got my bar mitzvah rather later in life. Uh, I guess you can do it at 13. I took it at 31, kind of the, the palindromic uh, Talmudic uh, approach to things, but I never thought I'd be, you know, preaching at a at a church as, uh, so soon after that. Um, we hold this conference every year on Constitution Day, or when Constitution Day as this year is on a weekend uh, right before, um, about two and a half months after the previous term concludes and two weeks before the next one begins. We're proud of the speed with which we publish this tome. Uh, authors of articles about the last decided cases, like all of the ones here, have uh, just about a month to provide us full drafts of articles and uh, we're proud of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's opinions allow for that. Both the book and the conference are intended for everyone from lawyers to educated laymen and interested citizens, and indeed we hope that uh, more of the latter uh, read this than, than necessarily the former. We already have the lawyers, we, we figure. Uh, we run a tight ship, so the schedules that are in your programs, uh, in your folders, we are sticking to that. Uh, you know, the show goes on, um, uh, one after another, and the, the, the breaks are delineated uh, as they are. Thanks very much to David Lampo and the publications and design staff for putting uh, together kind of the, uh, the behind the scenes, making this look uh, nice. Uh, Linda, Linda Herzog is back there and the conference staff for um, making things today run smoothly and uh, accommodating uh, all this group of people in a new venue. Our interns and associates who are floating about have uh, really did all the legwork. You know, I basically tell them what to do and catch a stray comma here and there uh, after assigning the, art the uh, authors their articles. So that's, they're really the ones uh, who deserve the credit here. And John Blanks, who uh, uh, has directed some of you around and uh, dealing with the speakers, getting them to the green room and so forth. Uh, really nothing at the Center for Constitutional Studies would, uh, would get done without him. I reiterate our hope that this conference and the collection of essays that you have will deepen and promote the Madisonian first principles of the Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' uh, fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not of men. In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand the Constitution, that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of government power. In this uncertain time of government overreach in almost every area um, that's often not just unwise but unconstitutional, and when it seems so difficult to reform our unsustainable entitlement programs, it's more important than ever to step back and remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. And again, continuing the uh, church revival theme, as it were, I, I hope that this revives, continues to revive uh, the idea that uh, you know, when you're discussing public policy, it's not just a matter of uh, yay or nay, but is this constitutional? And you, we, we hear that refrain uh, ever more. And so part of the revival is uh, bringing constitutional law ever closer or returning it uh, closer to the Constitution. We hope you enjoy this 10th Annual Constitution Day Conference. We begin. Uh, as we begin the new review with provocative views on the big First Amendment cases of the year. And the First Amendment is probably the only part of the Constitution that had a high-profile year at the court. We start with the violent video games case, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association. Now, unfortunately, Arnold Schwarzenegger left office before the case was decided, so we won't have his name associated uh, for posterity with violent video games, at, not, at least not in the legal sense. Brown involved a challenge to a California statute prohibiting the sale of the bloody shoot-'em-ups to minors, all minors, both five-year-olds and 17-and-a-half-year-olds, uh, which was part of the problem. 
I titled my blog post about the court's ruling an epic win for the First Amendment. Epic win is a gaming term, I'm told. Uh, but for a less cheeky, but probably more original take on Brown, uh, we have David Post, the I. Herman Stern Professor of Law at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University. David is also a fellow at the Center for Democracy and Technology, a fellow of the Institute for Information Law and Policy at, uh, at New York Law School, uh, an adjunct scholar at Cato, including being on our review's academic advisory board, and a contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy blog. He is the author, most recently, of In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on the State of Cyberspace, a Jeffersonian View of Internet Law and Policy. Next, and I'll announce, I'll introduce everyone so we can continue uh, going through without my having to, to pop up and, and interrupt um, the discussions. After, um, after David, uh, we'll move to one of the year's most controversial cases, uh, which, uh, again, following Citizens United, was in the area of uh, election campaign finance. I speak, of course, of Arizona Free Enterprise Club's Free Enter Freedom Club Political Action Committee versus Bennett. We'll just call it the Arizona Public Financing Case. This was a challenge to the state's clean election scheme, whereby qualifying candidates could choose to have their campaign funds funded by the government rather than relying on their own uh, and or contributed funds. The problem was that every dollar raised or spent by the candidate's opponent or independent groups supporting that candidate, supporting that opponent, triggered an equal amount of public funding for the so-called clean candidate. Such a program would seem to be foreclosed by the court's 2009 decision in Davis versus FEC, the Millionaire's Amendment case. And indeed, that's how the court eventually ruled. Discussing the Arizona public financing case will be Professor Joel Gora uh, of Brooklyn Law School, who has had a long involvement in campaign finance litigation while in high-ranking positions with the ACLU uh, and the New York CLU. His most recent book is Better Parties, Better Government, a Realistic Program for Campaign Finance Reform, which he co-authored with financial market expert Peter Wallison. And rounding out this august group is Tim Keller, the executive director of the Institute for Justice Arizona chapter. And as we know, all interesting Supreme Court cases originate in Arizona. Tim will comment on the very interesting First Amendment case that didn't directly reach the First Amendment, in this case, the Establishment Clause, Arizona Christian Scholarship Trust Organization versus Wynn. Again, we'll shorten that by calling it by its acronym, AXTO. For all intents and purposes, the court's ruling in AXTO that the taxpayer plaintiffs lacked standing to challenge Arizona's tax uh, credit scholarship program effectively found no establishment clause violation in that no public funds uh, went directly to religious organizations. Tim will discuss all that, and he currently serves on the board of the Phoenix Lawyers Chapter of the Federalist Society, which has just invited me to speak during spring training in March. But I'll note, Joel, that uh, there was no quid pro quo corruption here uh, because our, our mutually reinforcing speaking invitations are pure coincidence. Uh, the article that Tim wrote for us weaves together personal perspectives, <coughs> policy perspectives, and legal doctrine to contextualize this latest battle over school choice. So again, we'll start with David Post on the violent video games case. Thanks. I Ilya, is it okay if I stay here to talk? Whatever you like. That's what I like. Thank you. Um, uh, thanks for the intro. Thanks for inviting me, Roger and Ilya and Jonathan and uh, Cato. Uh, it's it's a, really a pleasure to be here and to, to be associated with this uh, with this volume, which is really, as always, uh, very interesting. Um, as as Ilya said, in Brown versus uh, Entertainment Merchants, the court struck down seven to two California's prohibition on the sale of violent video games to minors video games in which the range of options available to the player included, quote, killing, maiming, dismembering, or sexually assaulting an image of a human being, uh, unquote, depicted in a manner that a reasonable person would find appeals to the deviant or morbid interest of minors, and that is patently offensive to prevailing standards in the community as to what is suitable for minors. Um, that's a statute that the court struck down. It's a very strange decision. It's a very uh, set of opinions. Um, it illustrates, I think, or well, the range of opinions here mm -hmm. illustrates some really interesting things about the state of the First Amendment and the state of constitutional law. Um, it might even be a, an important decision, hard to tell sometimes until years later, 
whether a decision really is important or not depends on, on its effects uh, on the in law and on society. Um, but I think this, this, this could have an impact in the world. Um, I think it will be in the case books, at least, those of you who are lawyers or law students. Um, uh, you could do a whole course on, on First Amendment law, I think, uh, starting with, with these decisions and expanding outward from them. Um, you know it's a strange decision uh, just by looking at the lineup. Uh, I don't ordinarily go in much for the justice watching, justice counting, uh, what did Anthony Kennedy eat for breakfast, school of jurisprudence, as I call it. Um, but you do have to sit up and take notice when a decision comes down, when it's seven to two and the two dissenters are Justices Breyer and Thomas. Uh, you have to take notice because it has never happened before in uh, 20 years on the bench. Uh, they've never been alone in dissent, the two of them. Um, and the majority opinion, Justice Scalia writes for the majority uh, comprising himself and Justices Ginsburg, Kennedy, Kagan, and Sotomayor, also a sort of an odd and an unusual lineup. Um, <coughs> I really want to get to the dissents, where the really juicy, interesting stuff uh, is. Um, just uh, one each by Justice Breyer and Thomas, uh, truly astonishing uh, documents and uh, unfortunately not in a good way. Um, but here's a summary of, let's talk about the majority first and sort of the, the doctrine that comes out of Brown versus EMA. Um, the California statute, the court says, is a restriction on speech. Uh, the court disposes rather, rather easily at the beginning of the opinion on whether video games are speech and, and hold that they are, joining all the other courts, lower courts that had so held, um, just like TV and radio broadcasts and movies and all the rest. So it's speech. Uh, it, 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 as a restriction on speech, it comes to the court with a presumption of unconstitutionality. That's more or less what the First Amendment means. Strict scrutiny. It will be upheld only if California can sustain its burden of demonstrating that the measure addresses a truly compelling interest and that it does so in the most speech-protective way possible, um, narrowly tailored to address the problem with no less restrictive alternatives available that would be as effective. Um, the, that's the classic statement of the strict scrutiny standard that the court applies to uh, uh, restrictions on speech. It is a very difficult standard to meet, intentionally so. That's what gives the First Amendment its teeth. Um, not so fast, says California, defending the statute. Um, it is, after all, only speech to minors, only to persons under the age of 18. Um, and it's speech of a kind that we think we, the legislature of California, the people of California think is harmful to minors. Um, this case, California says, is just like Ginsburg versus New York, um, which applied a much lower degree of scrutiny than strict scrutiny to a New York statute just like this one. Ginsburg versus New York, 1968 case. Uh, Ginsburg versus New York prohibited the sale of what the court called girly magazines to minors. Um, magazines which contained depictions of nudity um, in uh, a manner that was harmful to minors. The court upheld the conviction in Ginsburg of a Long Island luncheonette owner who sold such magazines. And just, you know, you read the Ginsburg opinion, just the names of the magazines give off that whiff of 60s, the delicious frisson of nostalgia uh, for magazines like Gent and Swank and cavalcade and ace and sir to a 16-year-old boy. Uh, six to three, they upheld the conviction, Douglas Black and Fortas in dissent. The court's rationale for upholding the conviction in Ginsburg uh, was never clear, even from the start. It is not Justice Brennan's finest work, to put it mildly. Um, the court never really made clear on what grounds New York could punish Mr. Ginsburg for speaking, for distributing magazines. Um, if the material the luncheonette owner was distributing was obscene, it would have been, under conventional doctrine, outside the protection of the First Amendment entirely, and New York could regulate it freely. But this material was not obscene. Um, it was constitutionally protected speech. Um, the court seemed to say that the legislature, New York legislature, could deem these pictures obscene as to minors. Um, and that as long as they acted rationally in doing so, in determining that it was harmful to minors, 
um, the prohibition would escape First Amendment scrutiny entirely. It would be given just a standard rational basis review. Um, so just as the truly obscene is entirely outside the First Amendment and gets no heightened scrutiny, so too if the material is obscene as to minors, just as New York may prohibit the sale or distribution to anyone of material that is obscene as to everyone, um, subject only to non-First Amendment rational basis review, so too may it prohibit the sale or distribution to minors of material that is obscene as to minors, subject only to rational basis review. That seemed to be the interpre one interpretation you can give to Ginsburg, the one the court actually adopts here. Um, so back to Brown. So Brown is the fight about whether the, the Ginsburg exception applies. California says, <coughs> we're just like Ginsburg. This is a, it's on all fours. Um, it's not girly magazines, it's violent video games. But it's the same principle. Other than that, it's identical. We have deemed them harmful to minors, just as the New York legislature deemed the girly magazines harmful to minors. Uh, it was not irrational for us to do so. There's a lot of re research out there to suggest that they are harmful to minors. Um, so we win. Um, the court says, no, you don't. Ginsburg, the court says, is rooted in the court's obscenity jurisprudence. It's about sex-based expression. The almost but not quite obscene, the indecent, the pornographic. Um, I was once at a conference where someone said, you know, the line between, it's the best line I've ever heard at a conference, I think, the line between indecency and obscenity is indecency is when you do it with a feather and obscenity is where you do it with the whole chicken. <laughs> Ginsburg, the court says, did not permit the New York legislature to regulate material that meanly, merely had been deemed harmful to minors. It permitted the New York legislature to regulate sexual material that had been deemed harmful to minors. The Ginsburg exception doesn't cover anything a legislature finds harmful or shocking, but only depictions of sexual conduct that a legislature finds harmful or shocking. <coughs> Rational legislative judgments that those materials are harmful to children because of their sexual content will be upheld, as in Ginsburg. But the legislature is not free to expand the boundaries of obscene as to minors to include whatever material it deems harmful to them. So the California statute, therefore, doesn't fit the Ginsburg ex exception. It is not about sexual content, but violent content. Um, it is, therefore, simply a restriction on the content of protected speech. It receives the full monty, as it were, of strict scrutiny. Um, California has to show more than that the legislature was acting rationally in declaring violent video games a threat to the health of young uh, of, of the state's minors. California has to show that the statute is justified by a compelling state interest and narrowly drawn to serve that interest. Now, if you're like me, in the First Amendment context, um, at this point you sort of stop reading the opinion, usually, unless you have to write an article about it, which I did. Um, because, because all of the action in First Amendment cases is in determining what level of scrutiny. If strict scrutiny is applied, <coughs> the statute will fall. That, there are some exceptions to that in our jurisprudence, but very few. If rational basis scrutiny is applied, the statute will not fall. They will uphold it. Some exceptions to that, although not many. So all the action is on uh, here. Um, uh, but I did, of course, give it a look. And it is sort of interesting. I go into it more in the, in the article if you are interested in what the court actually says, why it fails strict scrutiny. It fails both prongs. Uh, it fails a compelling interest requirement. While there's some evidence, it's true, that violent video games cause harm, enough certainly for a rational legislature to act upon, California cannot show the direct causal link between violent video games and harm to minors with the degree of certitude that strict scrutiny requires, the court holds. So it fails that problem. It's not a compelling interest within the meaning of the First Amendment, and it's also not narrowly tailored to achieve its goal. It's wildly under-inclusive, quote-unquote, it covers only violent video games. What about violent other stuff? What about violent movies? What about violent cartoons? What about violent this? What about violent that? Why is that left out if this is so harmful to minors? And it's also vastly over-inclusive, the court says. Though the California asserted that the statute was designed to aid parental authority, the court says not all of the children who are forbidden to purchase these games, oh my goodness, okay, uh, have parents who care. Um, 
and that the statute really just covers what the state thinks parents ought to want and not what they necessarily do. So that's the end of that. It's a very peculiar First Amendment we get at the end of Brown versus EMA for the following reason. Uh, Justice Breyer asked this question, and it's a damn good question. What sense does it make to prohibit selling a magazine with an image of a nude woman to a 13-year-old boy while protecting a sale to that boy of an interactive video game in which he binds and gags her, tortures her, and kills her? What kind of First Amendment would permit the government to protect children by restricting sales of that, violent, of that video game only when the woman bound, gagged, tortured, killed is also topless? That is the First Amendment we now have as thanks to Brown. It's very peculiar for complicated <coughs> doctrinal reasons that I go into in the paper. The court could have avoided this. They could have come out the right way. I think they did come out the right way without this nutty sex-based uh, theme going on. But it's the dissents we have to talk about, the amazing dissents. If you're looking for an illustration of how odd the discourse in the Supreme Court can sometimes be, look no further. Um, with a little bit of effort, you can imagine that the three opinions here, majority, Breyer, Thomas, <coughs> came from three entirely different legal traditions. It's like the highest court of Romania, Morocco, and Australia had been facing this, and that this is how they analyze the Constitution. Uh, the two dissents come pretty close to self-parody, uh, which is not a good thing to come close to. Uh, Breyer's is the one that Linda Greenhouse called the most unusual judicial performance of the term. His First Amendment is all nuance and balance. He applies strict scrutiny, but it's all about the degree to which the statute injures speech, the nature of the interest, the degree to which uh, the statute furthers the interest, the effectiveness of alternatives, and whether overall the harm is out of proportion to the benefits. It's this all-too-familiar kind of multi-factor cost-benefit balancing mm -hmm. test, um, the one that we ordinarily don't associate with the First Amendment or strict scrutiny. Um, the most eye-catching feature of Breyer's <coughs> opinion uh, are the two appendices, 15 pages single-spaced, listing the peer-reviewed academic journal articles on the topic of psychological harm resulting from violent video games. Each article categorized as either supporting the hypothesis that there's harm or not supporting the hypothesis. David, wouldn't you say that the uh, scariest language in, in recent Supreme Court opinions is... Uh, uh, Appendix A to opinion of Breyer J. <laughs> exactly. Um, what he thought, why he thought this advances the constitutional discourse, I have absolutely no idea. Um, why he couldn't have just said, there are lots of studies, some for, some against. That's nine words uh, that I think does what his uh, appendix does. Um, Breyer's opinion, again, I go into more detail here, is, uh, is sort of technocratic. What's important to him is what the, that the experts... The experts have looked at all these studies. We're not experts, he said, judges. But the experts who have looked at the American Association of Pediatrics, and he cites a bunch of uh, medical organizations, they've looked at the studies, and some of them have concluded that there is harm, and that's enough for me in the First Amendment. That's, enough, that's a compelling interest for me. So he would defer, in effect, to the experts here. That's usually his posture, um, is, is deference, not to the elected legislature, but to the experts. Justice Thomas's dissenting opinion is at the other end of the spectrum. It's no nuance and no balance. Uh, the hard-headed and uncompromising <coughs> originalism for which he is well known. Quote, when interpreting a constitutional provision, the goal is to discern the most likely understanding of that provision at the time it was adopted. The Constitution is a written instrument. Its meaning does not alter. That which it meant when adopted, it means now. He reviews the historical record. Lengthy review, also sort of odd, I think, of uh, Cotton Mather's A Family Well-Ordered, <laughs> Thoughts on Education by John Locke, uh, Wadsworth's The Well-Ordered Family of 1712, and he revealed, it reveals to him that there's another category of unprotected speech, not just obscenity, but also speech to minors bypassing their parents. Unprotected. The historical evidence shows that the founding generation believed that parents had absolute authority, quote, quoting, over their minor children. It would be absurd to suggest that such a society understood the freedom of speech to include the right to speak to minors uh, without going through their parents. The founding generation would not have considered it an abridgment of the freedom of speech to restrict speech that bypasses minors' parents. Now, I understand and I am sympathetic the notion that the meaning of a constitutional provision should be informed by the meaning given to it by those who drafted and ratified it. 
Um, but one doesn't have to be Thomas Jefferson, for goodness sake, to worry here about the dead hand of the past. This is the deadest hand of the past, uh, controlling constitutional going, interpretation going forward. Do the child-rearing principles of Cotton Mather and John Locke really define for all time until we amend the Constitution? What, free speech is protected? Let's assume he's right, that he can actually reconstruct the sociology of the 18th century to demonstrate that parents possessed absolute authority over their minor children. Total parental control over their children's lives. Let's assume he can do that. That was the governing societal norm, let us assume. He's right. So what? That doesn't resolve the case. That's the problem. Um, because the question in this case is not, do parents have absolute authority over their children under the Constitution? The question in this case is, how did what California did here relate to conflicting interests? The authority of parents over their children, the power of the state to protect the well-being of children, and the constitutional protection for freedom of speech. It's a hard question in 2011, and it would have been a hard question in 1811, because it involves categorization and competing values. Um, nothing in Justice Thomas's historical research can tell me how people would have answered questions like, is this case really about the authority of parents? Or is it about the extent of the state's power to protect children? Or is it about the scope of First Amendment rights of game manufacturers? Or the scope of First Amendment rights of minors? Or the liberty interest of the sellers of... He can't tell me what they would have said in 1811 because he can't tell me what society would say in 2011 about that. Those are contested propositions. Let me put it this way. A guy walks into a bar. It is 1791, and it's Richmond, or Boston, or Philadelphia. He says, the government has just decreed that children can't attend religious services. Can it do that? Or he says, the government has just decreed that all primary school textbooks have to endorse John Adams' candidacy for president. Can they do that? Or he says, the government has just decreed that adults may not sing to children who are not their own. Can it do that? Now, Justice Thomas thinks that all of these questions can be answered in the affirmative. Yes, they can do that, uh, because each of those actions regulates speech to minors bypassing their parents. Um, preachers, school teachers, singers. Uh, and the First Amendment has nothing to say about speech to minors bypassing their parents, he says. More importantly, he believes that 18th century society, the founding generation, would have answered all of those questions in the affirmative. Yes the government can do that. And that, of course, is why he believes it can still do that, because the meaning is frozen in time. It's perilously close to nonsense. Um, no amount of historical research can tell us what the answer to any of those questions I posed would have been, because there is no answer that society can give to those questions. They're contested and contestable propositions. Depending upon how you characterize what the government is doing, helping parents or usurping their role, protecting minors or punishing purveyors of harmful material, depriving liberty uh, protected by due process, abridging the freedom of speech. It's the same fight in 18, uh, 1791 that we'd have in 2011. Uh, we gain something by understanding the original context. What we don't gain and what we cannot gain is an answer to the question before us, which is, is what California did here constitutional or not? Sorry, I went over a little bit. Thank you very much. Joel. What, what would the bars of uh, Boston, Richmond, and Philadelphia have to say about campaign finance reform? <coughs> well, we'll soon find out. Um, uh, I've been teaching law so long that whenever I see a podium, I have an irresistible impulse to stand behind it. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to stand. Um, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be here today participating in this event sponsored by the Cato Institute. And I want to thank Ilya Shapiro and the other people at Cato for including me in today's program. Uh, I cut my civil liberties eye teeth working with the ACLU in the 1960s and 1970s when that was the main civil liberties game in town. Today, Cato has become a major player as well in articulating and defending the principles of civil liberties against the relentless claims of government to encroach on that domain. So it's a privilege and an honor to appear here at Cato at this event today. I'm also delighted to be in Washington uh, because it gives me and my wife, Anne Ray Martin, who's here today, an opportunity to celebrate the 50th anniversary of when we met as college students on the Washington Semester Program at American University. Back then, Washington was still, in many respects, a sleepy southern town, 
of which pe President Kennedy could famously remark it was a combination of northern charm and southern efficiency. Uh, the ACLU had a one-person lobby shop, and for those of you uh, who like uh, uh, legal civil liberties history, the, the name of the lobbyist was Lawrence Spicer, and I think he is the Spicer of Spicer versus Randell, one of the, the best civil liberties decisions that Justice Brennan ever wrote, and relevant to our issue of uh, giving people uh, government benefits as long as they give you, uh, the government, uh, their rights. Um, uh, but we didn't really need a, a big ACLU or a Cato Institute back in 50 years ago uh, because uh, Washington was a civil liberties friendly place to the extent that the federal government was so much smaller and less insistent than the government we have today. Though, of course, if you were a communist, the federal government tended to be on your back, but otherwise it, uh, uh, more than today, uh, left people alone. We did not have in 1961. Uh, the environmental laws, many of the business regulatory laws, the civil rights laws, the great society welfare programs like Medicare and Medicaid, three major wars and a dozen minor ones, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, and of course, Obamacare. Uh, relevant to my talk this morning, we also did not have in 1961 <coughs> the Federal Election Campaign Act or the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, McCain-Feingold, or the Federal Election Commission, tasked with the power to monitor and control almost every dollar spent on federal elections and the speech and association embodied in that spending. Also back then, the liberal justices tend to be, tended to be the staunchest defenders of the First Amendment. Uh, they were the libertarians. Uh, the conservatives back then were more willing to balance free speech rights against the government's interests. Since then, we've had a kind of a judicial do-si-do, -si -do, and now, at least on campaign finance issues, uh, there's been a complete 180-degree rotation, and those thought of as liberals consistently support campaign funding regulation, while the conservatives consistently come down on the side of free speech. <clears throat> the case which is the subject of my remarks this morning is no exception to that rule. Indeed, it's more proof of the phenomenon, since it's the fifth case in a row where campaign finance restrictions and manipulations have been found contrary to the core purposes of the First Amendment to permit the most vigorous and uninhibited and robust debate of politics and government, particularly during an election season. Um, my slightly unusual title for my article is Don't Feed the Alligators, Government Funding of Political Speech and the Unyielding Vigilance of the First Amendment. The title is based on the following quote, quote, every dollar I spend over the threshold starts feeding the alligator trying to eat me, quote. That was the description of Arizona's system for public financing of political campaigns from the perspective of a candidate who financed his campaign privately without government funds. What he meant was that once his campaign funding exceeded the limit that the government thought was sufficient for his election, every time he raised or spent a dollar more, that triggered the government's giving one dollar to his publicly funded opponent. If he had two such opponents, they each got a dollar to match his spending and counterattack his speech, multiplying the government resources available against him and his speech. Therefore, his rather graphic lament about alligators. A generation earlier, a slightly more elegantly expressed objection to government funding of politics came from Eugene McCarthy, the great liberal senator from Minnesota, whose 1968 primary challenge to incumbent President Lyndon Johnson over the war in Vietnam helped end the Johnson presidency. McCarthy was one of the two marquee plaintiffs in the 1976 landmark case of Buckley versus Vallejo. The other marquee plaintiff was James Buckley, former senator and judge. It was my great honor to be one of the lawyers representing these two great Americans in challenging all aspects of the Federal Election Campaign Act. Um, McCarthy hated every bit of it, um, and particularly the public funding of presidential politics. He suggested that government funding of presidential campaigns was like the colonists in 1776 asking King George III to finance the American Revolution. Since politics was all about challenging and changing the government, it was ludicrous, McCarthy thought, for the government to be funding politics. So he and the other plaintiffs challenged any provision that involved government financing of politics complaining further that the financing was not only wrong per se, but it would discriminate against insurgents, third parties, and new points of view. 
Well, the effort to turn Senator McCarthy's perception into constitutional doctrine proved unsuccessful in Buckley. The court, with only two dissenters, held that the Constitution did not forbid the federal government from funding presidential campaigns. The contention that government funding of politics was a constitutionally inappropriate task fell on deaf ears. In the uh, 35 years since Buckley, the court has decided a couple of dozen campaign finance cases, but none of them, <coughs> until the Arizona case about which I write, none of them involved public funding of campaigns. So the court was revisiting the issue for the first time in 35 years, and although this time it did not embrace Senator McCarthy's insistence on complete separation of government funding and politics, it did reject a scheme that seemed to use government funding of politics to manipulate and suppress political speech. And the court did express the kind of skepticism about government funding of politics that recalls Senator McCarthy's observations about asking King George to fund the American Revolution. <clears throat> in its five to four ruling in Arizona Free Enterprise Club's Freedom Club PAC versus Bennett, uh, the court invalidated a key feature of Arizona's self-proclaimed self clean election scheme for funding state politics. As Chief Justice John Roberts' opinion explained, under the Arizona Clean Elections Act, candidates for statewide and legislative office who raised a certain amount of money uh, were then given um, uh, money to fund their campaigns as long as they did not rely anymore on private funds. But if they took the government money, they could not raise or spend a penny more uh, than the government gave them. Um, the Arizona scheme, the Buckley scheme, had given um, matching funds and a general election grant to candidates uh, and that was it. You could either take the government money or take the private or raise money privately. The Arizona scheme had an additional wrinkle to it, a so-called trigger. Uh, that was the feature that said that if an outside candidate who had rejected public funding spent more than the amount that the government had given the publicly funded candidate, more than the amount the government thought was the right amount for that campaign, then the publicly funded candidate would be given more money. And the more the privately funded candidates spend, the more the government would give the publicly funded candidate government funds to counter that speech, to answer that speech, if you will, to drown out that speech. And not only did this apply to spending by candidates who were privately funded, but even independent groups that either opposed the publicly funded candidate or supported the privately funded candidate, their speech would be matched dollar for dollar by the government giving speech uh, uh, money to the candidate uh, that they were challenging uh, or, or contesting. Um, so the more money that was spent against a government-funded candidate, the more money the government would give that candidate to counter that speech. That was the trigger. And the question in the case was, uh, did this trigger device advance or hinder the First Amendment goal of facilitating more political speech? The supporters of the law almost smugly claimed that since government funding would subsidize more speech by the participating candidates, it was almost by definition a more speech system. But the challengers pointed out that the availability of matching funds would deter and discourage speech by outside candidates and independent groups who in effect would be drowned out by government funded counterattacks and therefore they would refrain from their speech. The more they spoke, the more government would fund counter speech against them. That prospect in turn would deter the outside candidates and the independent groups that supported them from spending and drive the candidates into the public funding system. Indeed, that was the whole goal, was to try to make it sufficiently attractive to, to take the public money that more and more candidates would do so and that we would have the limits on campaign speech that the public money, uh, that accompanied the public money. Um, and so the court had to decide whether that trigger mechanism burdened the First Amendment rights of the people who were not publicly funded, of the people whose speech was being countered dollar for dollar by the government. Uh, and the court concluded that it did significantly and substantially burden their First Amendment rights by basically putting a financial penalty on their speech. Every time I say something, the government gives my opponent money to answer me back. At the end of the day, the chilling effect on, of that is going to be significant. And so the court concluded that this was a situation where the program uh, imposed a substantial burden on those um, uh, uh, speakers who chose to self-fund or uh, fund uh, through private uh, contributions 
uh, their political campaigns. Um, and as um, um, Professor Post suggested a little while ago, in much of constitutional law, so much depends on the standard of review. And in the First Amendment area, once the court finds that a government program uh, or restriction uh, imposes a um, substantial burden on free speech interests or rights, then uh, the government must justify uh, that restriction um, uh, by showing that it serves a compelling governmental interest and it is necessary to achieve that interest, so-called strict scrutiny. And as uh, Professor Post pointed out, uh, 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 rarely is a law upheld which has to meet strict scrutiny, and the same was true here. Uh, the, um, the government uh, said that it was trying to prevent corruption. Uh, that's the one uh, valid interest that government can try to seek to achieve in campaign finance regulation. It survives from the Buckley case. Uh, and the government said, we're trying to prevent the corruption of private money in politics. Um, the court's answer was, well, but you're not really serving that anti-corruption interest because, number one, you're penalizing people that fund their own campaigns with their own funds, and that is the least corrupting uh, situation. You can't corrupt yourself, and it's the most First Amendment protected. It's a person using their own resources to get out their own message, so that's not corrupting. And independent groups that are spending, you're, you're penalizing them by countering their speech with government funds to the person that they're criticizing. But independent speech is not corrupting. The Supreme Court has held that in every single case from Buckley through Citizens United. Uh, so that's not corrupting. You couldn't be doing that. And then finally, said the court, uh, yes, there might be some corruption potential if there were large contributors giving money to the privately funded candidate, but you've capped the limit at so low, $400 for a, a legislative race, $800 per person for a, a, a statewide race, that there's no possibility with those very low limits that there's going to be corruption from uh, undue influence uh, influ uh, um, uh, through a contribution. So you can't tell us that your system of trying to limit speech and have it almost all publicly funded is deterring corruption because it's not deterring corruption. The other goal uh, of such a system is to level the playing field. Make sure everybody in the race spends about the same. Level the playing field sounds great. Uh, it's a great soundbite for the people in favor of campaign finance controls. The problem is the Supreme Court has said it's unconstitutional, that government has no business leveling the playing field, limiting the amount of speech that any one person can have in order to enhance somebody else's right to speak. Uh, in Buckley, the court said, the idea that government can limit the speech of some in order relatively to enhance the speech of others is wholly foreign to the First Amendment, which was designed to make sure we had as much speech from as many people as possible and not leveling the playing field. Uh, and, and Arizona, in fact, said, well, that's not really our purpose, um, uh, to level the playing field, um, and um, uh, because they, they knew that that purpose was uh, uh, unconstitutional. Uh, and uh, 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 Ilya averted his bar mitzvah, I have to point out that um, in the dissenting opinion, Justice Kagan uh, used a Yiddish word, chutzpah. Some of you may know what it means. It means gall. Um, and she said chutzpah was because these uh, people challenging this law could have taken the public money, but they chose not to, and they have some nerve challenging the law. Well, I have a different definition of chutzpah. Chutzpah is when a government agency stands up in the Supreme Court and says, our law is not intended to level the playing field. And the Chief Justice of the United States responds, well, I went on your website this morning before court, and you list the purpose of your law as leveling the playing field. <laughs> now, to my Yiddish cup, as we used to say, that's good. Um, in any event, so the Supreme Court concluded that leveling the playing field was impermissible, whether or not it was actually Arizona's goal. Uh, and that preventing corruption was not being achieved in this case. And so for both of those reasons, um, the court struck this scheme down, this um, triggered public funding scheme down, that its basic goal was to restrict and punish political speech and the people who privately funded it, and that goal was antithetical both to the First Amendment and to everything that Buckley and other cases of that nature had said about the First Amendment. Um, so, it's the fifth case in a row where the court has taken a very strong stand in favor of campaign finance control, uh, in favor of 
of rejecting, pardon me, campaign finance controls. It's the first case where the court has struck down a public funding scheme. In my paper, I uh, speculate as to some of the consequences this may have for public funding uh, in the future and uh, whether there will be further challenges to uh, other kinds of public funding schemes that don't involve uh, this explicit triggering uh, uh, kind of arrangement. Um, I think those are things that will be important to, uh, uh, to spell out in the future. I, I want to conclude, um, I want to conclude by um, making uh, uh, some broader observations. Um, uh, I've been uh, working on these issues for a long time and um, uh, there are basically uh, three point, points of view that you have here. Uh, you have the point of view that uh, uh, political speech is important, but it's part of our governance, and therefore it can be subject to significant controls. Um, I think the dissenters in the Arizona case feel that way, and justices have felt that way going back uh, to the Buckley case. Um, balancing, as Justice Breyer would, free speech against uh, other kinds of interests. Um, that's one point of view. That the other extreme, or at the other end of the spectrum, not the extreme, is sort of the libertarian point of view, uh, that we need no government control of political speech. The less, the better. Uh, just get out of the way uh, should be uh, the mantra. Um, in the middle, there's some straddling. The Supreme Court straddled in Buckley. It upheld uh, contribution limits. It struck down expenditure limits. Uh, it struck down limits on how much candidates could spend, but then it upheld them if it was a, a condition on public funding. So that's sort of uh, the middle position. Um, there's one other position uh, that I want to mention, and that is um, uh, a position that tries to synthesize uh, both a concern for free speech as well as a recognition that there is inequality in our uh, political participation capacity and that maybe government has some role to do that. Um, and this position uh, was actually the position until recently that the ACLU advocated. And here was the ACLU's mantra about campaign finance. The ACLU's position was three, three points. Number one, no limits on contributions or expenditures so that free speech will, will remain unfettered by the government. Number two, full disclosure of large contributions to major party candidates so that the people and not the government can decide who has too much access or influence. And three, public funding to all legally qualified candidates, but without limits and conditions, so-called floors without ceilings, that was the position, floors without ceilings, to enhance and expand political speech without limiting. Uh, as I said, unfortunately, the ACLU is uh, has uh, moderated its position and moved away from that. I'm sorry to see that, but that always struck me as an interesting effort to synthesize freedom and, and government support for speech that doesn't involve restrictions or limitations. As I said, so-called floors without ceilings. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and my final observation would be, it's kind of interesting that the Supreme Court decision in the Arizona case has made floors without ceilings uh, sort of more politically attractive. Uh, because now that the, the Supreme Court has said, you can't just, as long as you say public funding, do whatever you want. We're going to be there looking over your shoulder with our First Amendment doctrines. Um, that might almost lead to a position where floors uh, without ceilings um, will become the, uh, the politically acceptable and perhaps the First Amendment uh, 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 acceptable point of view. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. Tim, you want to tell us about something uh, constitutional that Arizona <laughs> did? And I'll just say I noticed people sitting around and standing in the back. There are plenty of seats in the front row, hard to get to the handful that are elsewhere, but all of the VIPs who are going to be here are here, so feel free to take the reserve seats. All right. Um, first, let me just ask if folks can hear me. If I can't get the light to come out of my microphone, so I, I presume it's working. All right. Um, well, as Ilya mentioned in his opening remarks, uh, Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization, the win hereafter, AXTO, uh, is indeed a very personal case. Um, it was one of the very first cases I was assigned when I joined the Institute for Justice. Um, perhaps ironically, the other case I was assigned uh, involved our challenge to Arizona's public financing system. Um, but, uh, but we can't just have you talking about all No, no, no. I understand. I understand. Um, but I've been working on school choice cases uh, ever since I joined the Institute um, in 2001. 
Um, so I've been fighting on behalf of parents and children to uh, ensure that they can choose the school that most suits their individual needs. Um, and so Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization is a, a, a very important case because I believe it marks the end to future federal court challenges to private school choice programs. I also believe it signals the end to state court challenges to school choice programs that are funded via tax credits as opposed to publicly funded uh, scholarship programs. Um, the case was filed in February, uh, on February 13th, 2000. I suppose it was uh, the ACLU's love letter to the state of Arizona. And they challenged our in the, uh, the state's individual scholarship tax credit program. So let me tell you how the program works. Um, it allows individuals to donate money. Uh, the, the, it's a very modest tax credit program. That's got, the amounts are about $500 for an individual, $1,000 for a married couple. Um, they can donate the money to school tuition organizations and then claim on their taxes a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credits up to the amounts I just mentioned. And school tuition organizations are private, nonprofit organizations that are established by private individuals who, after they receive the donations, turn around and award scholarships to families so that those families can afford to send their children to private schools. And the ACLU's, uh, then I'll, let me tell you a little bit more about school tuition organizations. Um, as I mentioned, they're, they're nonprofit organizations, um, and the state allows them to open and operate along a number of different um, lines. In fact, this is the, the ACLU's primary um, contention with the program. Number one, they come into court and say that tax credits are the equivalent of tax expenditures, essentially these funds that uh, individuals donate and then claim as uh, tax credit on their tax returns are the equivalent of state funds. Um, and because of that, they say the way that the school tuition organizations are operating um, violate the Establishment Clause. Of course, the Establishment Clause to the First Amendment uh, simply says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And their specific objection is that school tuition organizations um, are permitted to operate just like any other nonprofit organization is permitted to operate. In other words, school tuition organizations are permitted to affiliate with particular religions, to affiliate with particular religious schools, and even to prefer co-religionists when awarding scholarships. So for example, uh, we have in Arizona there are over 50 school tuition organizations now operating in the state. Um, there's a Jewish tuition organization that funds scholarships for families to attend Jewish schools. Uh, there's a Catholic tuition organization that funds scholarship to attend Catholic schools. Um, there's, of course, the, uh, as the, uh, the title of the case indicates, a Christian school tuition organization does the same thing for Christian schools. And, of course, there are a number of completely non-religious scholarship organizations as well. In fact, that's one of the organizations uh, we represented in this case, uh, the Arizona School Choice Trust. The Arizona School Choice Trust has no religious affiliation. Um, accepts tax credit donations and is willing to give families a scholarship to attend any school of their choice, whether it be religious or non-religious. And so what the ACLU viewed as one of the program's weaknesses, we actually viewed as one of the great strengths of the Arizona program. Because after the state created the program, it completely takes its hands off of the wheel. Private individuals open up scholarship organizations and affiliate with the schools that that particular organization wants to affiliate with. Taxpayers are completely free to donate to any school tuition organization they want to. And of course it's the parents who ultimately choose which schools they want to attend and which scholarship organizations they're going to apply to for scholarship funds. Um, and so we viewed the program as one existing completely based on private choice and in fact funded by private rather than government donations. So we felt we had a pretty strong case here. Um, of course, in 2000, at the time of filing, there was a legitimate debate as to uh, you know, whether or not the Establishment Clause would permit scholarship programs that would, in, in, that would include religious options for families receiving the scholarships. Um, and then, but unfortunately, AXTO wasn't going to be the case to decide this issue. Um, it was sidetracked for a number of years on a completely separate issue. Um, the state of Arizona filed um, a motion to dismiss under the Federal Tax Injunction Act, 
which basically says that um, federal courts won't get involved in state court tax matters if the uh, plaintiffs have an equally speedy, adequate remedy in state courts. And of course, here they did. In fact, the, uh, the plaintiffs in Axto uh, originally filed their case in the Arizona Supreme Court in 1997 as an original action, and in 1999, the Arizona Supreme Court upheld the program um, both under the Federal Establishment Clause and under the State Constitution's Religion Clauses. Basically, in a very prescient decision, the court said that uh, because the Arizona program <laughs> is completely neutral with regard to religion, because it's governed by private choices, there's no advancement of religion and uh, no violation of, of the Constitution, either of the federal or state constitutions. And then, so in the mean, so that and, and that issue actually went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, in a separate decision in Hibbs v. Wynn in which the uh, United States Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision said, um, no, um, in fact, the Tax Injunction Act is not a bar to these sort of Establishment Clause cases, remanded the case back to the, the district court for a decision on the merits. By the time we get back to the district court in 2004, the U.S. Supreme Court has now decided the case of Zellman v. Simmons-Harris. Uh, Zellman v. Simmons-Harris involved a publicly funded scholarship program um, in, uh, for low-income kids in Cleveland, and uh, the court there said that the program was, was consistent with the requirements of the Establishment Clause because, as the Arizona Supreme Court had said a couple years before, the program was entirely neutral with regard to religion, and it was governed by the private choices of parents. And as long as those two factors were present, there was no governmental advancement of religion, so there was no problem with the government allowing parents to choose religious schools under those conditions. And so there was real, a real question as to whether or not the ACLU would even continue to press their claims in Axto. Um, when we held up the, the, the Zelman decision with the, the complaint in the case, it appeared on all fours, and it seemed pretty clear that under Zelman, the Arizona program was perfectly constitutional. But the, the ACLU did, in fact, press their case. Um, so we, can, we filed a motion to dismiss. The, uh, the district court quickly dismissed the case. And we were up in front of the Ninth Circuit. We waited almost three years for um, oral argument in front of the Ninth Circuit. Um, but when the day came, um, it was pretty clear that the, the Ninth Circuit panel we drew was, uh, was, was very favorably inclined towards the ACLU's position. Um, and so in their decision, they, um, oh, and at this, t so now that we're back in the district court, um, in addition to the motion to dismiss under Zellman, we made a separate claim. Um, we alleged that the taxpayer plaintiffs in the case did not have standing to bring the claims because the ACLU's first contention was wrong. Uh, we said that the tax credit funds are not the equivalent of state tax revenues. They are simply the government's decision to decline to collect taxes, and therefore the program doesn't involve any governmental funds um, and involves only um, private dollars. Um, like I said, the district court just assumed standing, dismissed the case under Zellman. The Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals found standing um, in a rather brief discussion on the issue and then turned to the merits and, and decided that there was, in fact, a legitimate dispute here. Um, primarily because even though under the program taxpayers had a free choice as to which of the school tuition organizations they were going to donate to, the majority of taxpayers were donating funds to religious organizations. This decision, they said, by private individuals to fund um, religious organizations over you know, a greater percentage than non-religious organizations um, was potentially an Establishment Clause violation. Um, so when we got to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, what was interesting is the, the standing, the, the arguments relating to standing and the arguments on the merits really increasingly became intertwined um, because, of course, as we're trying to demonstrate the private nature of the program governed by private choice and private dollars, um, it, it just continued to reinforce the argument under, stand, under the standing uh, issue that these are not, in fact, public funds. Um, now the general rule in federal courts is that taxpayers don't have standing to challenge pro, uh, federal court spending programs or, or federal spending programs or state spending programs. And the reason is that the courts say um, taxpayers simply don't have any sort of direct injury. It's very difficult to tie any one taxpayer's 
uh, paying taxes to this particular use of funds. And moreover, there's no way to redress the injury, even if there was one, because um, it's highly unlikely that if the taxpayer was successful in striking down a particular program that the government is going to respond by correspondingly reducing the taxpayer's um, tax bill. Um, so they've said no, no, no taxpayer standing as a general rule. But um, in 1968, the court uh, made one exception to that rule in a decision called Flast v. Cohen, and they said that in the Establishment Clause context, we will find standing for taxpayers so long as the case involves the extraction and spending of tax revenue. Um, and so it's a, a fairly narrow exception. Any e every effort to expand the exception beyond the Establishment Clause um, since that time has been uh, rebuffed by the court. Um, and in fact, even the Flast exception has been slowly um, narrowed down over the years by the court. Um, and so what the court said in Axto uh, was that it was basically the ACLU's contention, if taken literally, that tax credit funds were the equivalent of state tax revenues, was that the only logical conclusion was that every dollar subject to taxation would then be the equivalent of state funds. And in, the, by fi in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court absolutely rejected that contention and very clearly stated that tax credits are, in fact, um, the, the government's decision not to collect tax revenue, that these are private dollars, not public funds. Um, the implications of that decision are, are really far-reaching. Um, if indeed tax credits had been the equivalent, had been determined to be the equivalent of public funds, um, that would have led to a significant number of new federal court challenges to a number of state and federal tax benefits. Um, I mean, the, the reality is there's simply no way to distinguish um, tax credits from other forms of tax benefits like deductions or exemptions in any sort of principled manner. Um, a, a decision in ACTO going the other way could have led to uh, the complete elimination of uh, tax deductions for religious entities. Um, it could have uh, come with the reality that uh, you know, if, if, tax, if dollars that are donated to private organizations are in essence tax funds, um, it could have come with a number of government strings to private uh, nonprofit organizations like the Institute for Justice, like the ACLU that was bringing the case in the first instance. Um, it could have really opened up a, a really frightening Pandora's box. Um, but fortunately, what the, the court said uh, essentially, and it's, it's the way I titled my article, um, was that the money that is in your pocket belongs to you and not the government. Um, so it was the correct decision. We're very grateful to the, for the decision. Um, and as I see my time is just about up, I will leave it there. Thanks very much, Tim.